0: Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast, the official podcast of the Responsible Finance and Investment Foundation. I am Blake Good, the CEO of the RFI Foundation, a global nonprofit organization working to build awareness, promote research, and encourage convergence in the responsible finance industry, including socially responsible investing, ESG, Islamic finance, and impact investment. The purpose of the Responsible Finance Podcast is to connect you to the leaders behind innovative approaches to creating positive social impact in responsible finance. This month, we are featuring an interview with Talal Yassin, OAM, Managing Director of Crescent Wealth, who is also a member of the RFI Foundation Board of Trustees. In addition to his work at Crescent Wealth, Talal is very active across a range of organizations in Australia. Talal is an adjunct professor in the business school at Western Sydney University. He is chairman of Key Capital, the Australian Arab Dialogue Limited, and is the patron of the Crescent Institute Limited. He also serves on the board of the Whitlam Institute. Talal has previously served on the boards of Australia Post, Sydney Ports, Macquarie University, and was chairman at the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, as well as the Council of Australian Arab Relations. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the RFI podcast, Talal. Could you introduce yourself and introduce Crescent Wealth?
1: Well, thank you, Blake, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, My name is Talal Yaseen. I'm an Australian uh, business executive. Uh, I'm the managing director of Crescent Wealth, the world's first uh, private Islamic pension fund. Um, We're a fund of funds. We strictly, we're Australia's first and the world's first type of private pension fund that completely Sharia compliant, or responsible, as I like uh, to call it, and the Australian market. Uh, We first started off some about six or seven years ago, and we built uh, everything from the ground up. Um, And today, we we launched the market about four years ago, and today we've grown from zero to about 250 million Aussie, uh, which is about 200 million American and uh, we are a group of people committed to investments that uh, limit harm to humanity but expect a very reasonable uh, and market competitive return. And we, for, we don't consider the two to be mutually exclusive. I guess that's the way we describe Crescent Wealth, uh, unmistakably and uh, unashamedly Islamically compliant, but at the same time, um, very competitive professional and service-orientated.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and, and the way that it's grown over the past four years uh, has been based on that Sharia-compliant proposition, which has been absent from the Australian uh, supermarket uh, previous to Crescent. How has the approach evolved to, to attract a wider audience besides just the the Muslim population who would be the most, uh, most expected to to take interest in a a Sharia
1: compliant uh, product? Well, it's an interesting question. And I approached it uh, as a person, as a Muslim Australian who's lived in the West all their life. Um, I approached it as you would uh, like a babe in the woods in terms of the community and then the broader Australian community. Um, The Australian superannuation market, uh, like any large financial services market is exceptionally competitive. And exceptionally highly regulated. And so I focused on the highly high regulation part because it was um, it's it's like getting a banking license in Australia. It's regulated by the Prudential Authority uh, organization called APRA, which is um, a success within itself, and to which to this day we are proud of because it's so hard to get one of these licenses to offer superannuation in the $2.7 trillion market. But then we sort of thought, well, we'll approach the Australian Muslim community and they should be an easy win because it's 100% sure compliant. It complies with the global standards set by IOFI. We're we're, we're exceptionally professional, well-funded, and we have a dream. Um, We found that that didn't work in the way we thought it would because the Australian Muslim community, like every Muslim community, in Muslim-majority countries or Muslim-minority countries is looking for professionalism, return, service, respect, all the kind of things, you know, that you'd expect from any other product. So in terms of the Australian Muslim community, we don't approach the market by saying, well, you're Muslim, you're Australian, you're required to have a pension fund or a super fund, as we call it, um, and so therefore you should join us because we're Sharia compliant. The way the narrative is more like, this is our performance, this is our cost, this is our service. We happen to be Sharia compliant and we we invest our returns and the the fact that we seek not to harm humanity in any way um, or cause harm in our investments are not mutually exclusive. And so we ended up with about, at the moment, about 90% of our investors or members, as we call them in Australia, are from the Australian Muslim community and we have a long way to go. I think our market penetration is about 1% at the moment. Reaching out to the broader Australian Muslim community, uh, of which is about 10%, has proved a little bit more, I guess, complicated, not because of anything the broader community is thinking, but because of our strategy. And it's really simple. It's a a business strategy in a sense that we are effectively the only major player or the only real player in our market in the Australian Muslim community and if we venture out to the ethical community or the responsible investment community in Australia or the, uh, SRI or whatever wherever we, terms we use, then we're going into competition with multi-billion dollar funds and in effect it becomes a red ocean. And so we've decided in the short term to focus on the Australian Muslim community and then to reach out over a period of time to the broader Australian community, which is All is at the moment, I've got to say, because the banking, there's been a banking royal commission in Australia into uh, the banks, the insurance companies and superannuation funds, and who have somewhat acted um, unethically in some circumstances. And there's a big, big call in the Australian community and the populace in general for organisations to look beyond sustainable returns to the shareholders, but to what's good for the community, and what's sustainable in the long run. And Crescent Wealth, the lights for Crescent Wealth and the dashboard is all green at the moment. So as over the next year or two, we go out to the broader Australian community. Um, We have a ready and willing audience, and it's the way we perform, I guess, and the way we present ourselves. And so in summary, our strategy is Australian Muslim community first, as we reach a billion or two of funds under management, and then we'll grow that into the Australian broader community
0: seems like over time you've you 've been focused on some of the issues that are that are important to a broader segment of the population uh, beyond just Muslims uh, last summer you highlighted uh, and it was covered in the media uh, the infrastructure investment gap in Australia that you prov- provocatively called the intergenerational theft. Uh, could you explain
1: what you meant by that sure, so as part of our uh, mantra in Australia. It is to contribute to the social fabric of Australia. We're not just a super fund, um, we're a movement for good and for change. We happen to have an investment uh, uh, I guess uh, set of products that lead to that. Uh, so we've got a broader aim in is creating a superannuation product. And one of the activities that we do is we write papers about the future of Australia and the necessity to invest in our nation many of your listeners would not know may not be aware of course that australia has not had 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 27 years of solid growth the gfc known globally hardly touched australia Um, we have got we you know we've been called the lucky country and i dub us the luckier country for the last 230 years so we've done really really well in australia Um, economically financially and positionally now what we do lament and if any of listeners come to australia is that we have a very beautiful nation tucked in the in the um in the south of the globe so to speak but we've taken our eye off the ball in terms of instru- infrastructure and building for the future and the term intergenerational theft i use you're right somewhat provocatively in australia is that um in terms of generations we've had In the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s in Australia, the 1940s and the 1840s, 50s and 60s, we built infrastructure for the long term. We built roads across the country, uh, which is about the size of the United States or continental Europe with only 25 million people in it. We built the Harbour bridges, the Opera House. We built uh, highways and freeways. We built uh, snowy hydro schemes for millions of people. When there were only millions of people in the whole country. But for some reason, as we've as a country, we've become wealthier. We've found more and more reasons not to invest in nationhood, in building into the future for future generations. And therefore, that's where the term of intergenerational theft comes in. We took from past generations what they invested in us in terms of the future, but we refused to invest in the way we ought to, in my view, into the for future generations of Australians. And that will impact and affect the future economic growth of Australia if we don't change our mantra. And so in summary, we're the wealthiest we've ever been and uh, one of you know, the top five countries in the world. And I don't mean on a per capita basis, I mean on a you know, Western democratic middle power basis. Um, we live a fantastic lifestyle, we've had great economic growth, but we're not investing in the way we ought to in infrastructure, roads, transport and education in the way I feel we should and therefore I've written a paper as a professor or fellow uh, at the Australian National University um, basically calling for more focused investment and focused um, thinking in terms of looking to investing in infrastructure um, and the future of Australia and nation building through the superannuation funds, Islamic finance or government or a compilation of all three. Uh, whichever way we do it, it needs to be done. And that's that's what I've, uh, that, w- that was my call um, in uh, l- late last year. Um, and it was well, well received and well heard whether something is done about it is a different story. And I'll keep you posted.
0: Yeah, I think it, it resonates with a lot of the problems that we've seen in the world uh, today from uh, achieving the sustainable development goals, managing the impacts of climate change, uh, and also the global infrastructure gap that that exists across a lot of countries uh, in addition to Australia, it goes back to this point about how do you balance the interests of uh, today 's generation with future generations and we 've seen the outcomes from failure to to manage that is is significant. Can finance contribute to solving these issues? You mentioned that you had uh, highlighted a couple different uh, roles, including for Islamic finance, to to solve these issues. Is that something that finance is up to the task to solve? Or is it something that that is beyond the the current scope of the financial industry?
1: So, I mean, my view is that it's a multi-pronged approach. And finance plays a critical role in uh, underpinning that dilemma that we have around the world which is sustainable development, limiting the harm to humanity and the climate and the earth, and having a sustainable return for uh, an equality as as best we can for all. Um, Finance plays a critical role in the sense that through debt or through equity, we finance and or fund the activities of the rest of society. And in some instances, or a large set of instances, the finance industry has abandoned its role as a contributor to what the world will look like um, in, a, in, a, in, a medium, in a short, medium, or long term, given its role in financing activities or not financing activities, which may or may not be good for society. To give you an example, there's a mantra going around the world well, you know, if I'm an investor, then Um, My sole purpose is to return the maximum amount of money with the minimum amount of risk to my investor and, of course, take a bit of a clip, as much as I can, actually, along the way, and therefore to enrich my investors and myself. Now, that kind of thinking, um, and I, I exaggerate for effect, but for better or worse, that's the way our financial markets um, and the way we conduct ourselves in the industry. That's the mantra, even the legal mantra. You know? In Australia, it is the definition of what is in the interest of the shareholder is, is the definition of what your role and duty is. And I suspect around the world it would be, they would use different words, but that, that would be the similar kind of view of the world. It's, is it time to broaden out the definition of what is in the interest of the shareholder? Um, Is the interest of the shareholder merely financial? And so what if we make them a million dollars a day but they don't have a a community or a town or a city that they can actually live in? Uh, There's there's climate change that's so bad and so significant that they no longer enjoy um, what money they've made by going skiing or, you know, or going onto the waterways or going to beaches because they're too dirty or too impacted or too affected. And so I think there's a very critical role for the finance community in debt and or, and or equity or both to start thinking about what kind of world they are contributing to, if they simply focus on the sole goal of return to investor without considering any other item um, in, or, or matter in terms of the return. Now, we do have the triple bottom line reporting and we have SRI and the PR, United Nations PRI But for me, we need to go to the next step and make it not just an optional extra, but something that is critical to all investments. And like we are marked up or down on our investment return, we should be marked up or down, and or our cost, we should be marked up or down on the impact to society. Now, that is where a bit of a vortex or black box is open, because how do you define interest to society? And I think that is the debate. I suspect that the community at large, or the communities at large globally, led by America at the moment with what's happening with the Trump phenomena and the right-wing European populist phenomena, that people are being fed up by the global system that does not take into account um, equity between people and, and the environment. And, and I think that the community itself is going to be stepping up. We're seeing a pretty bad version of it, my view, is at the moment, but we'll see a hopefully more civilised version of it in years to come where simply investing for investment returns and simply acting out of self-interest and selfishness, Wolf of Wall Street types, um, type behaviour will no longer be not only not accepted but not tolerated.
0: And you, you mentioned earlier that uh, two things that I think tie into this, to this idea, you mentioned that uh, the way that you define the Islamic uh, investment that you make is not financing things that harm humanity. And then you also mentioned the, what had happened from the Royal Commission uh, highlighting some bad practices within the financial sector in Australia. How do those two tie together uh, in the ambition that, that Crescent has to grow from $250 million
1: now to $2.5 billion in, in five years? So I guess they're all part of the same equation, um, given that we are Sharia compliant, um, our one, uh, and we belong to the family of socially responsible investment funds, whether they be green, whether they be interested in gender issues, whether they be interested in anti-slavery, whether they, they kind of, to a larger degree, and I'm sure listeners would agree with me, whichever part of that prism they come through, um, they kind of end in the same place about conscientious and purposeful investment and are contributing to the social fabric, as well as getting a decent investment return, uh, for which in our circumstances is about a dignified retirement um, in Australia. Um, the, way, the difference between us and our family members, let's call them, in the social responsible field, is that we don't invest in banks and or insurance companies from an Islamically compliant point of view. A few years ago, when I used to say, uh, in, in shorthand, so tell me, what, what you stand for was that we don't invest in vice stocks, tobacco, armaments, pornography, weapons, and, and we all know the rest. Um, and then we, then I add to that insurance companies and banks. And they, they would always ask, well, oh, really? Why, why insurance companies and banks? Um, after the Hain Royal Commission, which has delivered an interim report and is delivering its full reporting, I think, at the beginning of February, which is a couple of weeks' time. Um, nobody asks that question anymore. Everybody understands that, you know, to to actually act and behave in such a way where it's not about the community and it's not about doing the right thing and it's not about balance. It's all about the profit, all about the dollar. And I don't mean in an anti-capitalist way, and I smash the state, capitalism is bad, the free market is bad. It's not that at all. It's free markets are good, uh, but civilised free markets and where the market is actually acting uh, in a balanced way. Um, And we can use whatever term we want, uh, and many people will have many debates about what that means. But I use it in the general term that the community is not happy and will not be happy where there's no sustainable long-term advantage to them as a community and where the few wealthy profit and where the others suffer. Um, And Australia is one of the most, well, we we like to believe that we are one of the most egalitarian societies in the world. I mean, clearly we have classes and we have groups, but we generally have a great welfare state, which I'm I'm personally very, very proud of. There's free education to a large degree, free health um, in Australia for all universal healthcare, Um, You know, we don't have guns on the streets. We ban not only semi-automatic rifles, all guns, except for people with specific needs, like police officers and others. We have a very uh, egalitarian, uh, welfare-based state, and we we value capitalism and the way the capital markets work. But even in Australia, um, people are suffering from the high costs, the lack of affordable living, and clearly now because of the way the banks and investment groups are acting, um, not reaping the benefits of our great economic returns fairly. And I guess, going back to your original question, when I tie all that together, the Hain Banking Royal Commission, what we invest and its findings, what we invest and what we don't invest, and that is based on not harming humanity, but making a decent return, um, they all tie very neatly together in terms of the present wealth mantra and uh, the need to contribute to the fabric of our society over the long-term and not the short-term, whilst making a competitive return for our members so they can retire in dignity and in honor.
0: I think that that sort of leads the way into the future. The, the, one of the things that we've seen is a reaction over the past few years uh, that's been largely negative to, to the inequalities in society. Around the world, and you see that there's uh, the potential, if if practices can be changed, we can change the way that people approach business and, and approach finance. Uh, that there can be a more optimistic uh, reaction, so that instead of trying to tear things down because it's because society is unequal or unequal, <clears throat> there's a uh, a push to to figure out how to fix the fix the capitalist system to to make it. Work more in the interests of a broader set of of people across society?
1: Yes, uh, I think that's a very good question, Blake. And I think it talks to the narratives of society. If you look across the Western world, Europe, the US, Australia, um, the Commonwealth countries, the, the wealthy ones anyway, there is a lack of leadership in terms of, and and capitalism and democracy go hand in hand, but there's a lack of leadership across the Western world as to an optimistic, aspirational point of view. You ask anybody, whether they're in America, whether they're Trump supporters or Clinton supporters, Democrats or Republicans or Calathumpians, whether you ask the English, you ask most Europeans, you ask Australians, on any side of the fence, the ones leaning towards the Tories slash populism is like they're protest voting. Nothing is working for us. The system is working against us. Hope is being lost. There's no aspiration. Those on the progressive side are saying the state will fix it. We'll give you more money. We'll build more things. But then when they're in power, some groups win and some groups lose. And for me, and this is going a little bit into political science, but it does impact on the economy because uh, they go hand in hand. And that is that a team of the managerial class have risen to the leadership, but they're not true leaders. They're managers. They manage economies. They manage things up and down. And it's almost like the economy and the lead and the lead of the world or their country in particular um, is, is not in their hands. These global economic forces that shape everything, but we can only you know, uh, rev it up or rev it down slightly. And there's no narrative now, I can call out Australia, but across the world as to have a beacon of hope about what we stand for. Economy, how you're going personally, whether you can get a loan, whether you can you know, build your family in a safe environment, whether you can afford for your kids to go to school or go to health, have healthcare or go to university or college, whether to live, within 100 kilometres of you, um, nobody's talking about that except in bits and pieces, either in oppositional terms or in managerial, bureaucratic, you know, we will you know, have a subcommittee to report the subcommittee of the other committee after the next election. And so people are reacting in this way. Now, I guess the, the, the call is for leadership, and once there is leadership, and a view that is broader than the next election or election cycle, that is broader than the next state or federal or, 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 or country budget for a particular country, um, that is broader than the next clash between, I don't know, Trump and whoever for that day, or one leader against the other within Europe, then there will be this continuing negativity divide, and I guess unaspirational, if I can a word, view of the world. Nobody's biased to anything anymore in the way that, you know, the democratic ideals of what we once stood for, um, which even authoritarian countries respected, didn't agree with, but respected. Today, um, as you look around the world, I mean, you know, you put a cat video up, people are relieved. You talk about the politics of a country and how you should lead, and people turn off because they're sick of it. They're sick of it in England with this Brexit issue. They're sick of it it in Australia. We've had five prime ministers in five years, and the country runs notwithstanding the political parties as opposed to because of them. In America, well, you know, I rest my case, and the list goes on. And so to a large degree, people have switched off or become really negative. And until we get that leadership, until the managerial class leaves the seats of power, which they occupy but they do not lead, uh, then I think the economic Uh, outcome um, will remain very much the same unless other leaders within the community, including leaders of the investment firms, of the banks, of of society, stand up and say, we need a different society.
0: Do you think that the sustainable development goals can be a framework and do you think that the leaders of the financial sector can break out of their traditional managerial mindsets to to give an aspirational enough vision that they can overcome the negativity that the financial sector in particular has has faced in the last 10 years
1: so I, I think they can play a very significant slash pivotal role in 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 the framework and it could be a driving force uh, along with other things that happen that could happen and that where leadership is shown in the world um, so the answer is yes um, I don't think it could you know, we need leadership is not one person or one group. It is society as a whole. And this is a very important part of society. Let me give you one example where the um, the leadership of the investment and medical community has made a material difference, measurable difference. You may have heard of tobacco-free investments in Australia. Um, a doctor, Dr Bronwyn King, Melbourne uh, oncologist, pediatric oncologist, I believe, um, was talking to her investment manager one day about her pension fund. And this was, uh, I think, about a decade ago. And in her between shifts interview with the financial planner, um, he mentioned to her that, you know, we invest in, you know, uh, I don't know which company it was, but it was one of the um, tobacco companies. And she was absolutely gobsmacked and shocked because she was an oncologist, she dealt with cancer and most of her patients were dying from tobacco-related diseases. And here she was with her personal investments in her pension fund and other investments, investing in those same companies. She then went on a nothing less than a crusade, if I can use that word, to stop or, or educate the investment groups in Australia, and then globally, about the harm that investing in tobacco, uh, certainly distribution, but especially production, can do uh, to society. And she has spent the last decade, in effect, uh, campaigning in Australia for the pension funds. And recently, last year, I think in September in New York, um, with BNP Paribas and several other global banks, celebrated, I think it was one from memory, $1 $1 trillion of investment no longer invested in tobacco production. And so that is a specialist doctor talking to financial uh, finance leaders in Australia and around the world to make an impact on society. And that is a classic example how standing up can make a difference. Think of all the lives saved um, in Australia and globally from... Uh, decreased investment in the production of tobacco. I can tell you in Australia, tobacco, which is now very, a very low penetration in Australia, of smokers, still costs the Australian economy 388 billion dollars a year. I can tell you that thousands of people still die from tobacco-related diseases. And so, in terms of harming humanity, what more can be said about, or what more can you do to harm humanity than to literally poisoned them and, um, and knowing that we're poisoning them and then knowing themselves that they're poisoning themselves. And then we as an investment community potentially continue to invest in it. And so that is a classic example of what could be, could be done. And this could be done across climate change. This could be done across intergenerational equity. This could be done across uh, you know, the global principles of equity in terms of investment and equality and the list goes on. Uh, but people do have to stand up to the forces that are anti this that are about just about profitability because that is in nobody 's long term interest, especially the globes
0: I think that 's a really really optimistic place to to close the interview because it it shows that by people looking around them and, and identifying the inequities and the contradictions uh, between what we aspire to and what the world and the state the world is in now um, can, can drive some significant action that can have some major major changes, uh, the result.
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: Well, thank you for the, for the interview. Uh, would you like to share the, the website information for Crescent?
1: Sure, and, and thank you for having me on, Blake. Uh, Crescent Wealth is uh, www.crescent wealth.com.au um, I can be contacted personally and the rest of my team um, uh, will respond if there's any questions or anyone would like to continue the discussion. I mean, we are a pension fund, but we want to, as you probably heard in the interview, um, we have a much broader mandate, um, I guess, in helping humanity and making the world a better place in the way that we can. and We believe finance and investment um, is a critical part of it. And we welcome any contribution, any help we can get.
0: Thank you to all and thank you for, for all you're doing.
1: Thank you. Appreciate appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Responsible Finance Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. If you want to stay updated about RFI's work, you can find a link to subscribe to our newsletter on our Twitter feed at RFI Foundation. You can also follow me at sharing risk. If you have suggestions for future guests, please drop us an email at info at rfi foundation.org or tweet it to us at rfi foundation. Hope you'll join us for our next podcast.